Good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church, and we are so glad that you're here today. We are continuing on in our series entitled Face to Face, or Coming Face to Face with Jesus, accounts from John's gospel where people met Jesus face to face. Have you ever wondered what that was like? Well, John helps us out a lot because Jesus meets a whole series of people in different situations, and when we get to see how these people interact with Jesus, we get to understand how a lot more about him and a lot more about ourselves and how he wants us to relate to him. Uh, today, we're going to read an account from John 5, where Jesus meets a paralyzed man, and it's true to form. I came up with a really creative title for today's message called The Paralyzed Man. So anyway, uh, it's easy to figure out who Jesus met today. We have some fill-in-the-blank items, and if you need a pen, then uh, please raise your hand. Some of you, I understand, got bulletins without an outline. So yeah, we have some extras of those, and if you raise your hand, we'll pass you one of those too, so you won't have to write on the palm of your hand. Uh, and we're so glad you're here. Let me have a word of prayer for us today and ask God to bless our time together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you, Lord, for John's account in John 5 uh, of how you dealt with a paralyzed man. I pray that you will speak, you will move me out of the way, teach us some things about ourselves that we need to learn and some things about you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Jumping in right away on John 5, one day Jesus healed a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Here's how John uh, recorded this for us. Jesus returned to Jerusalem one of the Jewish holy days, and inside the city near the Sheep Gate there was a pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, they lay on the porches, and one of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he'd been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. And Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed, and he rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. Now, it's important to note as we go through this that Jesus didn't ask the man a stupid question, Do you want to get well? The man had been paralyzed and helpless for 38 years. Jesus wanted to know if the man was also hopeless. It's one thing to be helpless. It's another thing to be hopeless. To make sure we understand the historical context here, there was uh, the belief that whenever the waters moved in the pool, that an angel had been sent down from heaven when the water kind of bubbled up. And whoever got in the pool first got a free healing. So, I mean, nobody knows what that looked like. I mean, there would, if people would have had relatives there, I mean, the water stirs and all of a sudden somebody's pitching grandma in from the, the, the cheap seats. I don't know. But there was obviously a lot of commotion and stirring going on. And here was this guy. He was paralyzed. He'd been there for 38 years and he, and he didn't have anybody to help him. So there was no hope of him getting in the water for the healing until one day Jesus shows up and stands next to him and asks, do you want to be healed? And as I said in that note, that's not a stupid question. It's a legitimate question when we've been in a difficulty or a hard circumstance for a long time, have we given up all hope that God or anybody else can help us? And you'd be surprised at how common that is, especially in my area in ministry. It wasn't that long ago, a couple came to me and I don't know whether they were just stopping in. I was the last stop before they went to meet with a divorce attorney. I don't know, but... They came in to talk to me about their marriage, and we were going to spend an hour together. We'd budget an hour. We spent 45 minutes, and all they did was hurl accusations at each other. Uh, long and short of it was, the guy had a horrible temper, and the woman had a vicious mouth, and they would just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I just said, look, I mean, stop. 
do, do you want to save this marriage? And I asked the guy, and he goes, not really. I asked the woman, she goes, I don't think so. And I said, well, I think we're done here. And they said, well, you haven't given us any advice. And I go, well, look, I'm the only one in the room who wants to save the marriage, and I'm not married to either one of you. <laughs> I mean, isn't it a legitimate question when you come in for marriage advice? Do you want to save your marriage? Isn't it a legitimate question if somebody's been dealing with an addiction for eight years, 10 years, 38 years? Do you want to get rid of this addiction? Do you want to get well? It's a legitimate question. It's one thing to be helpless. It's another thing to be hopeless. And as Christians, we never give up hope. And here's a life application for you and me. We must never give up hope because there is no problem that Jesus cannot handle. Would you read that life application, those statements with me, please? We must never give up hope. There is no problem Jesus cannot handle. And some of you, if you were with us last week, you go, hey, wait a minute. You read that life application last week, too. Yes, it's an important part of learning. It's called repetition. (laughs) Do you know that we forget this all the time? I put this in here on purpose because you and I forget this all the time. I remember when I was in seminary, I received a pastor's manual for doing weddings and funerals, and it's just chock full of great prayers, things to say at weddings and funerals, and there was one prayer in particular that I will never forget. I mean, it just stunned me how well it was worded, and it was a prayer to pray with people who are in the throes of grief, and it says, here's the way you ought to, it was a suggested prayer, here's a prayer you can pray, and it starts out this way, oh Lord, we thank you that you hear us. You are always more ready to listen than we are to pray. And you know our ignorance and our asking that we don't even know what to ask for. We come to you today for help. I mean, my goodness, I read that and I go, that is so true of my life. That is so absolutely 100% accurate. Lord, you are always more ready to listen than I am to pray. I will worry. I will fret. I will lose sleep. I will do all these things, but I haven't yet even once taken it to the Lord in prayer. I mean, it's one thing to be helpless. It's another thing to be hopeless. And why would we not turn to the Lord when we need help? Why do we give up hope on him without even asking? Give all your worries and cares to God. Peter wrote this. I mean, we're reading John's account. One of the disciples, Peter, was another disciple. And he wrote this. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. He cares about you. He cares about me. O sovereign Lord, Jeremiah 32, 17. O sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your strong hand and your powerful arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That's an Old Testament reference, a New Testament reference. It's all throughout the Bible. God wants us to trust in him, but we trust in ourselves and we trust in our circumstances and we give up hope when we're helpless. God came to help the helpless. That's the whole idea behind Jesus coming and dying on the cross. I can't save myself from my sins. You can't save yourself. I can't save you. You can't save me. But Jesus can save us all. So it's not a stupid question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to save your marriage? Are you done with this addiction? Are you ready to get rid of the bottle? Do you want to do something about that foul mouth or that horrible temper? Are you ready? It's not a dumb question. It's one thing to be helpless. It's another thing to be hopeless. And we don't need, we never give a hope because there's no problem Jesus can't handle. So the guy picks up his mat. He's healed 38 years. By the way, I always wonder what that sounded like, don't you? 
must have been some snap, crackle, pop in there. I don't know what that was. All of a sudden, the guy gets up, whoo, and he is dancing and picking up the mat and strutting home. And on the way, he meets some religious leaders, and they're not thrilled at all that he has been, he's walking after 38 years. This is John 5, continuing on from verse 9. But this miracle, the healing of this man, it happened on the Sabbath, so the Jewish leaders objected. They said to that man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, well, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you're well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. And then the man went and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. A man's walking after 38 years. I'm walking. I haven't walked in 38 years. Look at me. I'm walking backward. I'm walking forward. I'm walking. Yeah, but what about that mat? Where'd you get that mat? Why are you carrying that mat? If that sounds ridiculous to you, it's supposed to. That's absurd. Why would you care about the mat and not about the miracle? And there's a note here. By the way, carrying the mat did not break a biblical command, but a rule made by religious hypocrites. In the days in which Jesus lived, people had made a whole series of commands. Hundreds of them, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, had made all sorts of commands to keep them from breaking one of the original Ten Commandments. So so to make sure you never broke a commandment about the Sabbath, you made lots and lots of rules about exactly how far you could walk and exactly how much you could carry and all these things that would constitute work. And they had this highly refined, because the more highly you refined it, then the people who were the rule keepers, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they could prove they were better at staying away from breaking the law than you were. Therefore, they were more religious. Therefore, they were better in the eyes of God, and you needed to respect them. And it came across as self-righteousness and pride because that's exactly what it was, and Jesus couldn't stand it. By the way, here's the command on the Sabbath. It's from Exodus 20, verse 10, the second half of the verse. The seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. God had given that command originally in Exodus 20. If you read all of Exodus, you find out that this command was given to the children of Israel. They'd been released from slavery. They'd been in bondage to the Egyptians for hundreds of years. Grandma, great-grandma, great-great-grandma, they'd all been working seven days a week as long as anybody could remember. They were slaves. Slaves don't get days off. And Jesus said, I rescued you from slavery. You're my kids now. I didn't create you to be working machines. You need one day and seven to rest. You can knock yourself out the other six, but you rest on the Sabbath day. It'll be a day when you all rest and replenish, and you have a day then to worship me and trust me. That was why the Sabbath was given. But by the time Jesus was healing this man, people had turned this into a, I mean, these Sabbath Nazis or whatever we'd call them today. I mean, they are just after, I mean, think of the worst hall monitor you had in junior high and multiply it by a thousand. They're just out to catch people busting the rules because they're all about rules. And these are the rule keepers. And if we make enough rules and I'm a rule keeper and I can keep better rules than you, I win. I'm better. I'm closer to God. Look at me. And Jesus was indignant because as the son of God, of course he understood the Sabbath was never about looking at other people. It was a day to rest and focus on God himself. 
And that's why he said things like this in Mark 7. Jesus replied, you hypocrites, Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Blah. There's a life application for you and me out of this. God wants us to keep the main thing, the main thing. Look, it doesn't matter whether you're running a business or a school or a church or even just trying to maintain your marriage. We can always get mission creep or mission drift. And all of a sudden in a business where you set out doing one thing, all of a sudden a bunch of good ideas come in and now you're trying to do five things all at the same time and we're not very good at any of them. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? Yeah. Can happen in everything. Can happen in religion too. And it certainly had. Instead of the command being a day where the Sabbath was made for men, now all of a sudden these Pharisees were using it as that man was made for the Sabbath uh, to keep these rules. And it just made Jesus angry. Here's what else he said to them. What sorrow awaits you teachers of the religious law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. You're careful to tithe even to the tiniest income of your herb gardens. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice and mercy and faith. You should tithe, yes, but don't neglect the more important things. I mean, the same thing can happen today. Where people want to know, hey, what's the bare minimum I got to do to get into heaven? I mean, I know I got to go to church on Christmas and Easter and Mother's Day. Those three I've got. But But if I go like two or three other times a year, is that enough to get into heaven when I die? I mean, what's the bare minimum? And if I tithe, do I tithe on the net or the gross? Because I got to know so I can make my check out, so I can go check off my calendar how many times I need to go, so that way I get this Jesus junk out of the way, and then God will leave me alone. I want to run my life. I just don't want to go to hell when I die. Now, what's the minimum I got to do so I don't go to hell? That's not very far off from where these guys were. If you think that's what religion is about, that stinks. And nobody wants that. Because it doesn't result in real love. It doesn't result in a real relationship with God or anybody else. It results in a bunch of legalism and a bunch of rules and getting by with the bare minimum, or in their case, on the other side, playing the ultimate maximum to prove that you're better. And either way, we lose the relationship with Jesus. And God hates that. Luke 10, you can hear Jesus himself talking about this. One day, an expert in the religious law, another one of these guys, stood up to test Jesus. They weren't listening to Jesus. They just wanted to test him. He stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? I mean, you're the expert. How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. And you can underline that, by the way, because that's the main thing. Jesus was very big on saying this exact thing. In fact, he told him, right, do this and you will live. And I'm sure the guy was stunned because he wasn't expecting Jesus to agree at all. Well, then the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, well, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. 
But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, so a staff person at a church and a minister would be the parallels of these two. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. We went over this a couple of weeks ago, but a Samaritan was somebody with really strange theological views. I mean, this would be somebody out of a cult, basically, or something like that. And um, came along when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. I mean, somewhere, our faith has to result in actions. I mean, how can I love the God whom I can't see if I'm not willing to love my neighbor whom I can see? And that's scripture as well in another of John's writings. And he got it from Jesus. Jesus doesn't want religious show. He doesn't want us having a bunch of pretend rules. He doesn't want us to set ourselves up as all high and mighty. He wants us to be authentic with God and with others and to really put our faith in practice or else our faith doesn't amount to anything. 1973, by the way, there was a study done with seminary students. Um, (laughs) They wanted to see once how hurry and other things impacted people's willingness to help. Uh, There were two guys, two professors, J.M. Darley and C.D. Batson. They They called it the Good Samaritan Study. They took a group of seminary students and they um, instructed them. They had had them prepare a paper for a presentation on the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan. And so they'd gone through all the things we're talking about today, just that story we just read. And after they finished, they said they were going to have them do this with a group of students to other seminary students to present this story. So they'd kind of critique their presentation. And then they told them, oh, my goodness, you're five minutes late. They're waiting for you in the other building right across campus. What the students didn't realize is they had arranged for an actor to play a man who was very sick like and beaten and obviously in distress. They had, they had arranged it. So the room they were meeting in, the most direct path was right directly out the front door to another building. And there was an alley they would have to go through where this man would be lying there, this actor, in a very desperate state. And when they told the students to go teach on the Good Samaritan, the story we just read, and they would have to go past this actor, only 10% of the seminary students actually stopped to help the man. They said many of them literally stepped over the man on their way to go teach about the Good Samaritan. And they said if they told them they had 10 minutes, then half the students stopped. Half. But they said, if you hurried people up too much, then even the most religious people wouldn't take time to actually help people, even when they were going to teach about the religious Samaritan. But the good news is none of us are in a hurry, so let's just move on. (laughs) I mean, could it be, could it be for you and me that we live our lives in a hurry and oftentimes we only pay lip service to our faith and we're not even opening our eyes to the people around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, our friends, 
who might need our help. We're so busy. We've got a little bit of religion here. We better be careful. And this isn't about show. This is about being real and authentic with God. And that's why Jesus was so angry. I mean, I mean, again, we worship a God who has no limits. There's no limit to his power or his love. And what if there are people all around us who need God's help and we don't even know because we're so busy and we settle for a little bit of religion here and then? I think this story applies to us a lot. And we should be condemning of the people who are worried about the man's mat. I mean, Jesus wasn't suggesting that the guy goes into a moving business. I mean, two men in a chariot or whatever, you know, and get this done. He's not suggesting that. What he's suggesting was pick up the mat, go home. Give glory to God. He wasn't saying the Sabbath was ridiculous. He was just saying we need to be real about what's going on here. Well, point three in your outline, the story gets even better because the Jewish religious leaders not only harassed Jesus, but eventually they wanted to kill him because they saw him as a blasphemer. They wanted to kill him for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. But Jesus replied, the story goes on, and they said, well, you know, you shouldn't have been doing this on the Sabbath. And Jesus replied, look, my father is always working, and so am I. And Jesus pointed out to them what many of their own rabbis had written, that although it's a Sabbath day, God's love never quits. When you pray on the Sabbath day, God still hears your prayers. You don't get a busy signal. Sorry, closed till after the Sabbath. God was still answering prayers. And Jesus said, look, my father's always working, so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. And so Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees his father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. I mean, Jesus knew he was going to rise from the dead. And then you will be truly astonished. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They'll never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. And so in this one little paragraph here, these guys were just like, I mean, all the Sabbath Nazis really went crazy here. I mean, this guy is not only violating our Sabbath rules, telling us got to carry a mat. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming he can forgive sins and he can give eternal life. God alone is the only one who can do that. And who does this guy think he is? Well, Jesus said that he and the Father were one. And everything that the Father did is what the Son did. In fact, that's a note here. Because of his unity with the Father, Jesus always did what his Father wanted him to do. He wasn't setting himself up to be a different God. He was saying he was God in the flesh. I mean, this is where our theology matters here, y'all. We believe that Jesus is God and man at the same time. 
And this is a, an amazing mystery and a marvelous miracle. He's the God-man. That God became, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we could see what God is like. We could touch him and hear him. It's amazing. And Jesus always did what the Father wanted him to do. And the life application for you and me out of that is because we're followers of Christ, well, we must do what he wants us to do. Jesus says this, look, I've come to save you from your sins. When I return to the Father, he'll send the Holy Spirit. He'll fill you so that you can know what's on the Father's heart. You can know the mind of God himself. He'll sharpen your conscience. He'll convict you of sin. He'll lead you into truth. He'll help you. He'll empower you to be all that God intended for you to be. And that's why to come to Jesus is a surrender. It's not a competition. So we can do whatever God wants us to do. I mean, that's why those WWJD bracelets were popular for a while. Maybe we ought to break those out again. Or maybe even better, yeah, every morning we ought to say, hey, God, what do you want me to do today? I want you to make me like Jesus. I would like to know your will today so that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that your will will be done at my office as it is in heaven. I mean, when Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray, that's what he said. We'll pray this way. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. I mean, Jesus really lived that way. He wants us to live that way, dependent on him. That's why he said things like this, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my father will love them. I'll love them. I'll reveal myself to each one of them. This isn't about proving I'm more spiritual than you are. This isn't about me bragging that I've got a hundred quiet times in a row without a miss. It's about reading the Bible every day because I want to know Jesus. I want him to reveal himself to me. It's not about putting more money in the offering basket than you. It's giving because I want to give. It's also important to note here that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins and grant us eternal life because he is God. He's God in the flesh. He has the authority to forgive sins and he has the power to give us eternal life because he is God. And this matters. I mean, I want you to understand this. There are many people who talk to me and they'll say, well, you know, I believe Jesus is a good guy, a good teacher, but he never claimed to be the son of God. Yes, he did. And we live in a time now when people make a lot of movies about biblical characters and things and they take a lot of license with those things. Well, we can't take license with this point here. By the way, anytime that a movie is based on the Bible, we'll always trust the Bible version, okay? Just if you want to know, not the Hollywood version. But when um, C.S. Lewis, and this is listed, the uh, resource for this are a little bibliographic references on the back of your, the back page of this outline for uh, Mere Christianity. He was talking about, in Mere Christianity, he has a classic statement about why it's so important that Jesus is God and why it would have been so shocking for the original people to hear him say things like this. He said, one of the things that's most shocking is, is when you hear Jesus say he can forgive sins. So can you imagine if somebody came by and stepped on your feet and hurt your toes and you said, 
well, I forgive you for doing that, we'd say, okay, well, that's nice. But he said, can you imagine if Jesus was there because somebody would come by and step on your toes and Jesus would turn to both of you and say, turn to the man who'd stepped on my toes and say, I forgive you for stepping on his toes. Well, who do you think you are? I mean, Jesus is acting like he is the one who is chiefly offended. As if he was the one who made us both. Because he is. And C.S. Lewis goes on and says this. I mean, you've got to get this book. This is amazing. He said, this makes sense only if Jesus really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded every time we sin. In the mouth of any ordinary speaker who is not God, these words, I forgive your sins, would imply that I can, what I can only regard as silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is the strange and significant thing, even Jesus' enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit still less to unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him, not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell, and you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Man, can that guy write. If Jesus goes around telling people he can forgive people's sins and grant them eternal life, he's claiming to be God. If anybody ever tells you, well, Jesus is a good moral teacher, he never claimed to be God. Of course he did. Even his enemies recognized that, and that's why they killed him. They said he was a blasphemer and he was demon-possessed. And some people did say he was a lunatic and he was crazy. But Peter and John and the other disciples said he was the son of God and they fell down and worshiped. And that's why we worship him today. He really is the son of God. And he rose from the dead and he proved it. He has the power to forgive sins, the power to grant us eternal life. There is no problem that he cannot handle. And that's why he wants to be our power supply. He wants to give us that life. He doesn't want us to rely on our own strength, our own religious constructs to earn our way to heaven. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. None of us are any closer than the rest. We all need forgiveness. We all need Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for John writing this marvelous account. I thank you that the lame, paralyzed man was healed I thank you that he walked away carrying his mat. I thank you even for the ridiculous example of these uh, Sabbath Nazis, Lord, who wanted to go out and bust everybody who was doing the wrong thing. I don't want to be like them. Oh, God, I don't want to put on a religious show. I don't want to pretend to be better than I am. I don't want to pretend to be better than anybody else. I want a right relationship with you. I want to love you with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. And Lord, I want to love my neighbor as myself. 
I really want that. If that's your desire this morning, would you just pray silently right now and say, God, I want to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, please help me love my neighbor as myself. God, this week, would you show me what you want me to do? Would you open my eyes to people who need my help? I don't want to be a seminary student who steps over somebody on my way to teach people about the Good Samaritan. I want to be the real thing. I don't want to go to worship on Sunday and sing great songs about how great you are and then not give a flip about the people who live down the street who need my help. God, there is no problem that you cannot handle. There is no problem. Forgive me for my worry and my fretting. Forgive me, Lord, for talking to a hundred other people about things and not talking to you. And Lord, we thank you that you are always more ready to listen than we are to pray. And Lord, you know our ignorance in asking that we don't even know what we're supposed to ask for sometimes. So please, God, hear our prayers. We are your children and we need you. God, keep us far from legalism, from pretending to be better than we are. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come in my life. I want you to work and move in my life just like you move in the lives of everyone in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.